All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. The podcast there is brought to you by the fine folks at readrothbar.com and actualanarchy.com. We speak about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective, and today we're going to talk about Mad Max Fury Road. I have my guest uh, on the line, but before we say hello to them, let's say hello to Robert. How are you, Robert? What's up, Huggy Bitches? I'm back. We're doing this one finally. This is one that's been in the in the oven for a while. I keep saying, "Hey Dan, let's do Fury Road, let's do Fury Road," and Dan keeps pushing it off, pushing it off, and because um, he wanted to get our guests' possible take on some of the issues that might come up in this movie. Um, yeah, I, I didn't see a whole lot of it, but I'm eager to get our guests' take on this one. So. Uh, yeah, let's do this, Daniel. Well, and our special guest, uh, speaking of buns in the oven, is my wife. My wife. She has bore me two children, and they're wonderful. And she is also, and I'm very proud of her for this, but she had the two, two children, and then she determined to get herself back into shape after having the second kid. And so she's been working out for the past two years, three times a week. And she's been seeing these results, and it's been really amazing, and I'm very impressed with her. She sent me a picture of her abs the other day. And I was like, damn. So, Jamie, my wife, how are you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your journey of uh, getting back into shape? Okay. Um, so I'm Jamie. Um you mentioned we have two kids. The older one is almost four, which blows my mind. I can't believe we have an almost four-year-old. And the little one is almost two. Equally amazing. They're wonderful children. Um, our focus is homeschooling and raising them to be knowledgeable, thoughtful, well-rounded kids. Um, as Dan also mentioned, I've been working out since having the second child. The second pregnancy was really difficult. Uh, and my body suffered. I had a uh, separation between my abdominal muscles. It was pretty, well, I felt it was extreme. It took me a lot of work to get the muscles to join back together um, after being separated. Uh, it wasn't until my chiropractor pointed out recently, mentioned that your muscles are damaged or your muscles were damaged, that it really made sense why that was so difficult to rebuild them. But they were damaged. So I've been doing this program called Turbulence Training, and it's short, intense workouts, which is pretty much, you know, it's a 25 or 30 minute workout. That's, that's all I can fit into my day with two little kids. So I've been doing that. 
three times a week. Is that right? I try to do more, but it's, you know, it's hard to fit that in and still be able to keep up with the kids in the way that I want to. Because they like to be active. So, um, what else would you, what else should I mention? No, I think that's that's good enough. I just wanted to give you mad props for putting in that work and, and being so dedicated and finally seeing the results. And it's a program that I've been doing as well, not so much recently. <laughs> kind not of fell so much off. recently. You've taken about a four-month break. And it's, now, Robert, you wanted me to go after him. It's always yes, some, please. Excuse, some excuse, Dan. You need to put in that effort if you want to, you know, get the results, right? But thank you. I appreciate you saying that I've worked really hard. You don't tell me that. And I probably know that you are aware that I'm, you know, making these improvements in my body. But unless you say it, it's hard to know you think that. So I appreciate you saying that. Well, you're uh, welcome. Yeah. Getting way too nice on this podcast. Um, but well, I... it feels good to have somebody say that, right? To acknowledge acknowledge that you've done a lot of work and you, you've worked really hard for something. Yeah, well, I will say, just to tie this into the movie, is that you're about as ripped as Furiosa, but you've got two no arms. No way. Not at all. Well, if anyone is interested in checking out the turbulence training thing, we've got a link for it down at the bottom of the actual energy page, or you can go to readrothbar.com slash TT and look into it. It's actually really cheap. It's like 20 or 30 bucks to sign up for it, and you get access to these videos that you basically just follow along. And like Jamie was saying, it's three times a week, 20 to 30 minutes each time. And uh, they've got multiple levels. You start at the beginning, start working your way up, and before you know it, you start seeing results. At the beginning, even if you think that you're like, oh, I work out all the time, start at the beginning. You need to make sure you're using your muscles correctly. If you're flopping around, it's not going to do you any good. Well, it'll do you very little good. You'll get the satisfaction of finishing a workout, but not the, not the actual like muscle rebuild, muscle intention, whatever. You can just talk over me. It's fine. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you saying something? Ha, ha, ha. No. It's my wife. I don't listen. Hey, um, <laughs> so Robert, Jamie, th- thanks for uh, introducing introducing yourself and talking about that. But let's talk about this movie, Robert, Mad Max Fury Road. Why don't you uh, take us through this, and then we will do our commentary scene by scene as we as like we do. Okay, and uh, you promised me that there's going to be an argument here, so I'm, I'm excited. Uh, so Mad Max Fury Road came out in like 2015. Um, veteran director George Miller uh, came back to his scene that I, I, I think he originally like started directing because the original Mad Max was very very low budget just made it for whatever he had could scrape together and then he went on to deliver like Babe and some other movies but yeah so he comes back and he's like I don't know like in the 70s or 80s or something he's like super old but he comes back and he crushes it with Fury Road and the movie stars Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron as Imperator Furiosa and Max, respectively. Um, the setting is, you know, your typical uh, post-apocalyptic setting where the world is a desert. 
Um, and there's these enclaves that trade amongst themselves. Um, one is led by Immortan Joe, who is our bad guy in the movie. And then there's also a bullet town. And then there's also a gas town. And these guys kind of team up to chase down um, Joe's escaped wives. Um, but we'll get into that. The movie starts out with Max just chilling, minding his own beeswax. And some sort of uh, group of some of uh, Immortan Joe's thugs, like warboy, like scavengers, come and uh, capture him. And it turns out that Max is a universal donor, so he's super valuable. And um, so he's like strung up, and there's a there's a war boy that um, is like super sick. Like everybody in this world is deformed or sick in some way. They don't exactly say why. Maybe radiation fallout. We don't know. But everybody is not whole. There's a theme that runs throughout the movie of um, the sickness and dirtiness and filthiness and is played up big in um, the messianic figure that Immortan Joe has become, where if you die in battle in service to Joe, you are made shiny and clean and they spray like silver spray paint on your teeth to make you all shiny and chrome and clean again. Um, so that is played up uh, in his kind of like cult figure status, and we can get into that. I'm eager to hear what people think about his status as a, uh, a cult figure, because um, at many times during the movie, they're talking about like he is the one who grabbed the sun, and he is just this guy that can do anything and whatever, so... We'll get into that, though. So, anyway, Max is kidnapped right off the bat. So, I had a problem with that. That's immoral. It's wrong to kidnap other people. Max has self-ownership. And, uh, yeah, he's brought to the Citadel where uh, Furiosa is leading a – driving a war rig. And she's got, like, a little party, like a war rig. And then she got, like, a couple, like, a scouts for a front and behind that kind of, like, support her. And she's supposed to be going to Gastown to trade Aquacola, which is water, which is what Joe pumps up from the earth. He has dug a well, and he pumps it up into the Citadel. And he's also trading uh, mother's milk, breast milk, that has been pumped by these, like, milker, feeder women that he has. And she's supposed to be taking that over and trading it for gas, but she doesn't. And she takes, she's actually absconding with Immortan Joe's wives who feel more like prisoners than wives. He keeps them in this uh, vault, like a bank vault, which he assume you, you know, he probably keeps locked. They can't just like walk about and leave. Uh, it's also worth noting that these women are, they're known as like the prize breeders. So... They're, like, super attractive and, like, look good and they don't have, like, tumors growing off of them or they're not deformed or anything like that. So these, they have high sexual market value. And it's kind of assumed that Immortan Joe is, like, this wealthy guy, 
but there doesn't seem to be money in this world. It's more of a barter system. And he has all this water, which he just sprays on, like, the masses that live down at the bottom of the citadel. There are people you see just, like, living in holes, just like that they've dug out, whatever, and they're, like, deformed or amputees or whatever. Anyway, so she is absconding with the wives, and their idea is to go to this place called the Green Place. And there's a party that is enlisted to track her down and catch her. And as she's going through this desert, we find that it is defended by various clans. Uh, At one point, there's like these hedgehog guys that fight her, defending their territory. And then there's uh, these motorcycle biker guys who live in this kind of uh, canyony area. And she has made a deal with them to allow passage through their territory in exchange for gas. Um, and the movie is just basically one big giant chase scene. Uh, Max is thrown onto the front of one of the pursuit vehicles. And it's all about how he's trying to survive and how she's trying to escape and get away. And all the wives are trying to escape and get away. And how Morton Joe has enlisted the the leaders of probably Gastown and Bullet Town were not like essentially explicitly stated that that's who they are, but these other groups come in pursuit, and they are chasing down uh, Furiosa and her war rig, and it's all one giant glorious action scene, really. I mean, it's broken up a little bit, and there's a little bit of dialogue and a little bit of story. Uh, there's a little bit of romantic tension between Furiosa and Max. Um, but that's about the, it, the entire story. Um, do you have anything to add, Daniel, before we get into, like, scene by scene or concepts to break down? Well, I guess the, the story was about her trying to get back to this uh, green place, right? This area where she grew up and she wanted to free these women who were slaves to the Morton Joe. And they end up discovering, spoilers, of course, that that place no longer exists. And there's 160 days worth of traveling in one direction that they can go if they want to seek out whatever's beyond the horizon. But Max says, you know, you could go 160 days and just end up at nothing and die. Or we could go back where we came from. It's like two or three days away. And it's undefended right now. If we can make it back, we can take it over. We know there's water. We know there's uh, cultivation. We know that there are people there, so let's go back to where we came from, the Citadel. So I think that that was kind of an interesting loop or arc within the story. That the that story was one big circle, essentially? Yeah. Yeah, it's essentially, you know, free these slaves or, you know, try to try to get them to freedom. This whole army chases you, and then once they're now out of there, you kind of see this strategic opportunity to go back and swoop in and close off the canyon behind you, you know. So, yeah, kind of go back where you came from. But it, it's taking the um, the known versus the unknown, right? Like there's hope for something better, but it's unknown whether it's actually there. So it's almost the grass is greener argument. And they decide, you know what, for survival purposes, we know we can survive 
back where we came from. So let's do that versus just blindly hoping that we'll run into something else uh, with the limited supplies we can carry on uh, on these motorcycles with us. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's get into it scene by scene, unless, uh, Jamie, you had anything to add? No. Okay. So, um, the first movie, I, the first scene I really want to kind of discuss a little bit, if not have this be the massive thrust of my entire discussion, um, we have Joe addressing the crowd below. He's up on this, like, mesa. It's towering up in the sky. Imagine, like, a skyscraper, but it's made entirely out of stone. And below him, at the bottom, are all these kind of teeming masses who kind of revere him as a religious figure, but they're also looking for a handout. And he says, I am your redeemer. It is by my hand you will rise from the ashes of this world. And then he dumps the water down on the cheering masses, and he kind of like chides them for being so obsessed with water, like don't get addicted to it or something like that. You'll become a slave to the water. And it's it's very clear to me in this movie that Joe is the villain, and rightfully so for many of the things, and he has many crimes to his list. He has doesn't. I mean, he, it's not clear whether these women, I mean, they call him his wives, and at one point, one of the wives is like, yeah, I want to go back there, be with Joe. It was, it was alright, we were safe, he took care of us, blah, blah, blah. But then other ones were like, yeah, but you weren't, you were never free. Uh, and so there's a little bit of a discussion there, or at least hesitation on one of the wives' part. Um, it's, it's, it's not, you know, super clear whether they entered into this relationship voluntarily or not. Um, you know, uh, whether they stay in that vault for their own protection, probably not, because they're trying to escape. Um, but it's, it's not explicitly stated, but we can assume probably. Um, but the main thing that I'm interested in, because that's kind of fairly cut and dry, is this idea, because later on in the movie... Um, when Furiosa is explaining the green player, the Citadel to these, uh, old ladies. I forget their name. Uh, I have it written down here, but there's no way I'm going to look through this and find just exactly what I'm talking about. This is the Furiosa's, like, original biker gang, but they're all old ladies. Yeah. Right? Yeah, now they're old ladies. Um, I forget what they're called, but they have a name. Like the Mothers or something like that. But she's explaining to them the Citadel and Let's see here. Let me see if I can find exactly what the quote is. Um, hang on. Hang the fuck on. Okay. At the Citadel, there is a, quote, ridiculous amount of clear water and a lot of crops. It's got everything you need. He pumps it up from deep in the earth, calls it Aquacola, and claims it all for himself. And because he owns it, he owns all of us. So this they're kind of making this argument that even though Joe is the one that apparently is like the owner of Aquacola Incorporated and he can do what it fit, whatever he wants, um, that they have some sort of other claim to it, that there's something preventing them from leaving or digging a well and pumping up their own damn water. Um, I don't see what the obligation Joe has to providing water for everybody else. 
Um, all you have to do to take away this guy's power is to leave. Walk away from the guy. Dictators have no power unless there's somebody listening to them. So uh, this idea that, well, he pumped up this water and therefore it exists and therefore I have a right to it because I exist. Um, I know this is the argument you're going to make, Daniel, and I can't wait to hear it come out of your mouth. But it's a, it's a very communist argument, and I can't wait to hear it. So if you want to jump in at any point, go for it. Well, I think that the scenario in which this is built is sort of one of those um, far-fetched, totally ridiculous situations that you'll get into uh, a debate with somebody about, and they'll come up with the most contrived possible <laughs> situation to try to prove their point. And, and it's, you know, again, just so I know crazy. a guy. I yeah, know, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we had this very discussion with him uh, in our house when we were living out on that island, and his basic argument was, well, what if somebody could buy up or have the only access to something super important, and no one else could could have it, and then he just decides, hey, you know what, you can't have any. Like, I'm just going to keep it all to myself, and then you're at, you know, you have to bend to my will to be able to survive, right? Because water is necessary for people to live. And there are a few components that are used within the story to kind of support that. Um, one is that apparently there's really no access to water surface level, right? Um, the, there's been like some kind of nuclear event. There's a, a lot of desertification of the entire you know, surrounding area. Like, I think at one point they say they can go, um, they can ride for 160 days in, in any direction, but it's just these great salt flats, and, and they have no idea what's beyond that. Uh, and then the place that was where Furiosa grew up, it was a quote-unquote green place where you could grow crops and there was water. It's now become um, salted, right? Like the water is, is not uh, potable. You can't grow any crops. You can't drink it. So it's right. almost like this, this, uh, ANCOM's wet dream to say, all right, I'm going to develop this situation, the scenario where only one person has monopoly control over the water supply and there's no money and he's rich even though there's no money. So these people have to revere him like a religious figure and he's a, he's tyrannical and they have to, uh, beg him for this water that gets allocated very uh very miserly and so it feels like the scenario is is built up in such a way to where it's it's trying to paint him as the capitalist exploiting the workers exploiting the 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 people when i take i take umbrage with some of your wording sir if you but continue with your point well i guess my point is that it's it's a situation that would be so unlikely to happen, mm-hmm. but it's almost um, like a tribalist, like very low, primitive, low developed um, social structure that that is in play here, right? Like it's almost as if they're in a cult, and so they're looking up to this man. And he, as an aside, you know, right before he addresses the crowd from the top of this tower. He's shown to be this weak, disgusting-looking old man who puts on this, like, He-Man bodysuit to make him look all buff and strong and, and fearsome. 
Mm-hmm. So it's it's like the emperor's new clothes, right? Like he's it's all for show to to make him appear strong. And I think don't they make some reference to that? Or no, I'm I'm totally confusing this with uh, Game of Thrones and the Dothraki, <laughs> where you have to be like the strongest, and then they'll follow you. But it, it has a little bit of a tinge of that, to where if, if he can show that he is strong and powerful and fearsome, and he also provides them water, and they have no other options for water, and they also have no you know money system apparently. Though they are trading, right, for gasoline. It's like a maybe a barter system that's in place between the bullet town and gas town and and the citadel, which I guess you'd call water town, right? So I don't know if I've really said an argument just yet, but I feel like that it's just a very contrived scenario that's trying to prove this point to paint uh the rich guy, the capitalist guy, the guy who has the resources as this monopoly exploiter. But go ahead and take umbrage with some of what I said, and, and then we can dive further into it. Okay. Some of the things that you said, um, you said that they have to worship him, which I don't think is at all displayed. Um, they definitely do in a certain way, and he acts as if as a, some sort of a messianic religious figure, and especially the war boys treat him as some sort of a god figure. But it it isn't clear to me from what I saw that He's only giving them out water, and I mean giving. He doesn't have to. He's up at the top of the citadel. These people are no threat to him, um, that they are like attacking him or anything like that, um, and they don't have to worship him. And just to say that it's difficult to get at the water doesn't mean that there's no way to get at the water. Human ingenuity, uh, you could barter with people, I mean, Obviously, there's the technology to make these vehicles. There's the technology to make bullets. There's gasoline. Um, he gives away water. So any like entrepreneurial-minded person could save up some water that he's giving away, go to Gastown, trade it, go to Bullet Town, get some machinery, dig yourself your own damn well, and go into competition with him. And it's, it's weird that there's no money. I... Uh, I think that's some sort of a, I don't know, like movies do that sometimes to simplify things. I don't know. Who knows? It, it's, it's some weird thing. I mean, there would just be some natural sort of currency, even if there's no like printed currency. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that there's any kind of force. I, you never see him violently dominating the people that live there. There's no like walls keeping anybody in. It's just this mesa, series of mesas, and these people are naturally congregating, like, of their own will to do it. Uh, because he's giving away free water, uh, he doesn't seem to be asking anything from them. Um, he's obviously probably getting, like, recruits uh, into his, like, war boy army and that sort of thing. But um, it doesn't appear, at least we don't get to see in the movie, that he is violently dominating those people, although he's obviously violently dominating and scavenging from the outsiders and like Max and probably other people like him. But my main point is that any entrepreneur could easily do their own thing and it doesn't require them being beholden to to uh, him just because he's the first person to do it and everybody else is too lazy or too stupid 
so that they're just like, well, I'm just going to be lazy and just have him give me water instead of actually going about and taking the initiative and doing it my own damn self. That doesn't make him a bad guy. All right, so I take umbrage with some of the things you said because I, I, I feel like that the scenario as it's laid out is that there's these three cooperating um, gangs, right, that control these little trading outposts. And the in-between area is sort of this no-man's land where you're at your own risk, like you've got to be armed and, uh, you know, they're signaling back and forth with these lights to, like, determine, okay, we're on our, we're opening our gates and we're on our way over to you. There are no gates. There are no gates? I've never saw a gate. Did you see any gates in the movie? There's believe... a, a winch thing that drops down like a vehicle to get up into the, the citadel at the end of the movie. Right. Well, I, I guess my point is that, that anyone, like Max, could have been this, this free entrepreneur, and he was outside of this protection of one of these citadel or gas town or bullet town. And the war boys, the, the citadel folks, capture him. They use violence against him to prevent him from being a threat to them, a threat to their monopoly, right? So even if Mad Max... Wait, what? Are you are you making the argument that Max is an entrepreneur in this movie? I'm saying that he had the potential to be one. Okay. I saw I, I him as a resource, and that they wanted a, that they wanted, so that they used violence to capture him in his vehicle. Sure, sure, yeah. But he also potentially could have been um, somebody who would have, you know, provided an alternative, right? They they couldn't allow any alternatives, so they wanted to ensure their monopoly. Um, but, but what? It, if you but weren't part of one of these three um, communities, then you were a fair game uh, to have violence brought up upon you. And it's almost a Hobbesian, Rousseauian, uh, stationary bandit versus the roving bandit. What What's stopping any number of people that live in any of these enclaves from becoming an entrepreneur? Probably violence. You say the word probably, because that's not established in this movie at all. Well, we do know that that if somebody is outside of, of these quote-unquote protection areas, that they will be attacked by by one of these groups, right? Or other groups, like those hedgehog dudes or the biker gang dudes or even the uh, the lesbian bikers at the end, at the green Yeah, as long as you don't, yeah, you don't make an agreement and you pay them and whatnot, yeah. Right, and they have that, that trap uh, of naked woman up in the cage. Right, the the, the mothers did. Right. So I'm saying that, that in this world, this universe, that unless you are within one of these um, stationary bandit situations where there's somebody offering you protection, that there, there wasn't a sophisticated enough society or a, a functioning market to allow for anything else to, to kind of go on. Wait but, a minute. So you're saying that, that and Morton Joe was offering protection to anybody that lived at the base of the Citadel? They were living in those holes? Yeah, because if they weren't living in the Citadel holes, they would be living out in between and be subject to the roving bandits, the hedgehog dudes, or even Joe himself. And Mad Max is, is a prime example, right? He's out there minding his own, his own business, and the war boys go grab him. Yeah. And then his wives, you know, his five wives, I'm sure that they weren't consensual. So, you know, it's it's wife rape or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think he used the term wives to make it less kidnappy and rapey. 
but they wanted to escape. You know, they were prisoners. Furiosa saw this. She wanted to help them escape. And just because one of them sort of had some reservations once they're out on the road and, and, you know, being pursued by people with weapons and, and shit was getting blown up. Uh, and, and she goes, you know, maybe, maybe escaping is not the best idea. I, I, I'm likely to die out here. Going back to Morton Joe, not the greatest thing, but it's better than getting murdered. You know, by because, Morton Joe. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'm not, I'm not debating that he's not a, a villain in this movie. I'm just saying that he should be vilified for the things that he does wrong, not because he's a capitalist. Right, but it's not clear to me that he is a capitalist. I mean, think of it this way. Um, the pharaohs in Egypt had slave labor build the pyramids, right? So let's say that Immortan Joe, you know, he has this very primitive civilization here, and he has these war boys and, and all these arms, and for whatever reason he's got um, their reverence, and he has them construct this well. And it doesn't seem like he, he acquired this through voluntary transactions or entrepreneurial, well, a lot of speculation. entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> this, is, this is all pure speculation here, sir. But well, you can sure, read whatever but, tell you want. It's a totally like made-up scenario, right? Right, but we're evaluating the movie as it's given to us, not as we would have liked to have seen it. Well, then we have no way of knowing whether his thing was a voluntary thing, right? It just exists. So, right. This is this is why this is our job to evaluate it based on what it is. I was. Are you saying our job is too hard, so we should change it, so that we should just make up what the story actually is? No, I'm trying to to come up with a plausible scenario for how this could have even come about, and I I liken this more along the lines of he's a cult leader, pharaoh type, who has this slave labor. And he tries to eliminate any competition. He goes and takes slaves. He um, no, wait a minute, out, wait a minute. Outside of that area, are are he's going to use violence against them? Wait a minute. So, are you saying that the war boys are slaves? The war boys are like in a cult. So, what does that mean? Does that mean they're a slave or not? You're being offered to do a job. I'm speculating that how he built his. And you're being paid I'm, something no, once you I'm, die. We don't know he's being. They're being paid. We know that they have a place to live. I mean, I guess that's a form of payment. But you know, when people were picking yeah, they're being back in the day. They were being they were promised being provided payment when and, they when they die. Yeah, the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, what is it? The Muslim like the seven virgins when they die or forty virgin virgins. Yeah, it's very much based on like Norse mythology, and you go to Valhalla and you live forever. It's like a modification on that. So, I mean, if you're telling me that the Norse mythology, the Norse religion is a, is a cult, then okay. But does that mean that all the Vikings were slaves? I'm not really following what you're saying. I'm, I'm trying to speculate onto how he came about having this citadel and the, the infrastructure for the wells. And well, let's say, let's say he bought this citadel or he was, he homesteaded it. He's the very first person to come to it, right? And he dug a well. He did what I said. He he bartered. He had some some capital, and he bartered with it to Bullet Town or wherever, or he had it with him. And he built a a digging mechanism, and he dug himself a well. And then, through hard work and ingenuity, 
he's built up this whole place, and people just naturally flock to it because he was just giving away water in exchange for their adoration. That ha- that doesn't involve slavery at all. Right, but there's as much support for that argument as slavery argument. Uh, you still haven't made your slavery case there. I, you speculate that he was entrepreneurial, somehow came about the means to, you know, without money, uh, the means to have a well constructed. And I'm speculating that he was more along the lines of a pharaoh who had slaves do it. At no point is he threatening violence against any of the war boys. So if he had his war boys do it, if you if you're like some sort of a cult leader and you promise them, you know, everlasting life in the afterlife, if in exchange for 30% of your income or work help me build this well, are you telling me that you think those people are your slaves or are they entering into a voluntary relationship? To me, they are definitely not slaves. They are people that are entering into a voluntary relationship just because they're being sold a false bill of goods in our estimation that he's just a cult figure and not a genuine religious figure because there are billions of people around the world who would disagree with me and say that there are definitely genuine religious people who definitely and genuinely have something to offer as long as you follow a prescribed lifestyle that you're definitely going to be rewarded with the thing when you die. Billions of people are in the vast minority, or I'm in the vast minority, who don't believe that. So to call out a Morton Joe and say that he's selling these war boys a false bill of goods, whereas Jesus Christ or Muhammad or anybody else is is selling a, a proper bill of goods, um, I don't think you can really point to any one thing and say that one person is right and the other person's wrong. They have about as much evidence to back up their claims. But we do know that they kidnapped Max. And we do know that the wives were selected for breeding. They were not willing participants. That that wasn't voluntary. So we know the character of Joe is that he has no compunction with having slaves and going out and using violence to go grab people. Agreed. Yes. Yes, me. No, I was saying yes to Daniel. I think that's how you had something else to say. He's going to follow that up. Or are you just so shocked that I agreed with you? No, I'm just saying that we know that he is not shy to go out and use violence against people to acquire slaves. So I think it only supports my argument that this whole situation could be built on slaves. I grant you that, that you can speculate that. And yes, he does seem to have no problem with having slaves. Right, because I feel like the other thing, trying to, to make him out to be this entrepreneur, I, I, I don't see as much support for that based on his actions. Well, you don't see him using any kind of violence against the people that live at the bottom base of the Citadel. If anything, he's just giving away resources that he has brought up from the earth. Right, I mean, we if don't Bruce know. McDuck is just throwing money at people, you're saying that he is unjustly in control of those people by giving them money? But we don't know how he appropriated, how he acquired this this water, right? We don't. And we Correct. also don't know what the structure of this primitive civilization is. But if he is providing them this, um, you know, s- somewhat protection, right? They're, they're, they have a lot of weapons and, and the war boys, right? So any of the roving gangs like the hedgehog dudes or even the bullet farmers or the, the biker gang in the canyon can't attack these people 
because they'd be met with with resistance from the war boys. Probably. It seems to be that, yeah, there's, in this world, um, the different warlords have staked out different territory, which they defend. More so the territory and less the people in it, though. Sure. But it, this, you know, it feels like it, it's, like I was saying earlier, this contrived situation <clears throat> that is, uh, also the common, the common idea of what anarchy would devolve into. Right, like it's yeah. gonna be these these warring uh, factions, this civil war, all against all, machine guns on the back of Toyota pickups. You know, essentially what the vehicles they have—they're all you know got spikes on them and guns, and they've got these like pole dancer dudes that have these detonating spears. Plus the guitarist is a bad. Plus the guitarist, which I want to get into and that. This made no fucking sense to me. Like this just what? that part was that's weird, that's, man. That's totally badass. If you're going on a war hunt, you got to have some music to rock out to. You can't just pop in a CD. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know it was all for style or whatever, but... And I guess, you know, in um, Revolutionary War type stuff, American Revolution, they had the, the drummer dude and the, the... What was the guy playing, like, a fife? Like the, you know, the Yankee Doodle yeah, the little piccolo stuff. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah little, little piccolo, piccolo guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or and in uh, Game of Thrones, they've got the the drums on the ships when they're attacking. So yeah, yeah, it's about like some way of uh, pumping up the the fighters to like go out. Yeah, and, and yeah, and it, there's a long history of of uh, people going into war to music. I mean, and you see it in movies like Apocalypse Now. I mean, it's done to intimidate your opponents, and it's done to fire up your own people. And you know, yeah, it's, it serves multiple purposes. Yeah. So either we've got Joe, who's this like amazing entrepreneur capitalist, who the uh, Furiosa, who's an Ancom, is like, that motherfucker's just given out just enough water to keep us here, but not enough to like let us, you know, he's not giving us enough free shit. So we we don't like him, right? Because he's this rich capitalist exploiting us, or he's a cult leader who is running a protection racket and he's. Uh, taking out any potential uh, competitors, like by going and kidnapping them, and he's and he's acquiring lives and raping them <laughs> to, to have children. So I, know, I think that's, he's not a good that's dude. A, that's, you had a long ways to go to convince me that he was kidnapping Mac because he was a potential competitor. Far more likely that those are scavengers. And that they are looking for resources, and they saw Max as a resource because that is what he is throughout the whole movie. First, he's a he's a blood bank for whoever when he's war boys. Nux, who's got some kind of a cancer. Yeah, he's got like these cancerous tomb things on his neck that are going to kill him. And anyway, and he yeah falls in love with uh, the wife, one of the wives, and she likes him, and then he sacrifices himself. Spoiler. Um, I definitely, I'm not making the argument that he's a good dude. He's obviously a villain, which I've said. Right, and, and with Max, I'm not saying that Max himself would have been a competitor to Joe's monopoly on the water. I'm saying that there was potential for him to be, and there could have been other people similar to Max who were not beholden to any of these three um, or four or five groups. I guess there's three little trading outposts, and then there's these other different gangs. But he was like an independent dude, right? So yeah. 
what I'm arguing is that if there were somebody so inclined to do what you suggest, that they would be attacked violently by Immortan Joe or by Bullet Town or by G- Gasoline Town or by the Hedgehog Dudes or by the Canyon Biker Gang. That's possible if they saw them as a yeah as a vulnerable target. I would say probably yeah these are people that without any kind of compunction that do like any moral qualms about it. Um, these people are very much like nihilists in that sense. They are very much might makes right, and we can do what we will do, and we don't care. And we're just you know we're trying to survive here, and we will do whatever it takes necessary. They're establishing their in-group preference, and they will exert violence on anyone not in that in-group. Right, but I guess my point is, in the scenario of this movie, there's really no market functioning. I mean, sure, these little outposts barter with each other. But all of the masses, the teeming masses of the people at the base of Citadel, they're not shown to be producing anything. There's no market activity going on there. There's no money that we see in this system. Like, it, it's, it's like the argument that somebody who says anarchy would devolve into something like this, sort of, that doesn't display any of the countervailing forces of what a market would, would provide. Like, the, there's no division of labor. There's no, specialization really um you know there's like some real loose specialization but there's no functioning market displayed in this in this movie and so there's no argument against it devolving into this warlord anarchy whereas so do you think oh good this is like you know what people say move to somalia right because this is what what you're left with but what somalia is it's really competing uh, factions trying to become the government, right? Trying to become the monopoly provider of violence in a given area. So, I mean, I have no idea if George Miller was trying to make any kind of statement, if he has any kind of knowledge of this. It seems to me more like he he has this kind of world in his head, and it doesn't matter if it really makes sense. Maybe it's, it kind of reflects his own understanding of economics, who knows, or if he's just trying to tell a story. He doesn't care about the details like that. Do you see him making any kind of statement along those lines, or are we just reading into it? Well, I, I think we're probably reading into it, but I don't think there's a really enough presented here. Like, we don't know where a lot of this stuff came from. We don't see um, anything outside of of they trade water for gasoline or for bullets, right? And that there's some, some uh, mercenary type, or not mercenary, but like some bandit type risks in between those three trading outposts. That's really all we see. And then we see these uh, rape-wise escape, right, which is what sets off the whole scene. So why don't we bring Jamie in a bit here, because we've been dominating this conversation for a while now, being the patriarchy that we are, and get some comments about, um, one, the uh, the milkmaids, right, the wives that are there to bear him children, the breeders, and then the um, the old lady biker gang at the end, and how they're using uh, a naked woman as bait to you know trap people who are trying to help somebody, right? Somebody who's trapped, uh, yeah. and then you know then they're going to attack them and kill them or take the resources or whatever. So Jamie, right. why don't uh, do, you, do you need a little bit more lead off? Maybe Robert can. What were some of the points that you saw? Um... Uh, how did you feel maybe about the, the, the milkmaids, the breeder wives, and the, the women at the end? Um, 
essentially setting a trap for anybody that was trying to help somebody. Um, okay. Did you have issues? What were some of your issues? Okay. So first, you keep saying that Morton Joe gave away this water, and you make it sound like it was... Um, but these people, they're there in his city. They have The way that the movie is set up, they have no they can go out into the desert and die from dehydration or be killed by some other um, city out there. Uh, so are they are they free? They if they have to stay there, he has that water. He could sell it to them, but instead he's like pouring it out in front of them and making them fight for it, which is it's pretty vicious. Why not sell it? Even if they don't have money, they have some way of trading with each other something if something of value um so does he have some sort of an obligation in your eyes to no not an obligation because he has the water but he has it and he's just he's wasting it like spraying it out all over the ground right he has so much of it that he can afford to just waste it why not yeah why not just charge for it make it available and charge for it that scene i was kind of like what the why those people they need some uh, nourishment and water. So why not make it available to them to spray all the ground? But you could charge for it. I'm sure people would be willing to pay for some water. Hey, Jamie. Sure. Jamie, is there any way that you could sure. call in on that other phone? Is this one cracking up a whole bunch? It sounds like shit, yeah. I told you. Robert, like when I called the vet, like they're like, Ooh. Yeah, I'm having a hard time hearing her. Yeah, why don't you start calling in on the other phone, and then I'll just cut out this little middle part here. Cutting. Cutting it out. Cutting it out. Cutting this garbage. Cutting this shit right out. Calling on the other phone and that was garbage. I I couldn't hear anything she was saying, like the occasional here and there, but it kept fading. Yep. Same here. Yeah, and even at the very beginning, like I'm going to have to, maybe we'll just have to pretend like she wasn't even here. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) That phantom guest that we didn't have. So that was Jamie, everybody. I mean, we, we've essentially dominated the conversation thus far anyway. Um, but she did have to attend to the kids a little bit. They do wake up from time to time. Indeed. But, uh, yeah, she, I, I do want to hear what she has to say about, um, especially like the more feminist type things. Um, cause, yeah, those, I mean, the livelihoods of those like milker ladies can't be super sweet. But at the same time, that that's probably the best job they could get. Oh. All right, Jamie, say you were quite large. Is that better? Way better. A million times better. Okay. Yeah, the other phone is total garbage, and we should ship I you blame, over to the new one. Yeah, I blame you-know-who for using my phone as a teething toy. Oh, the matriarchy. Oh, yeah. The little communists. Expect everything for free just to be handed out to them just because they're alive. Yep. Well, we don't need to get into that. 
<laughs> you asked about the the milkmaids. Wait, wait, we gotta we gotta um, do like a chunk of silence, and then kind of. So Dan's gonna cut out a whole chunk. So Jamie, you yeah. got on called back in on a, a a better phone. So hit us with the hard stuff. Okay, so are you going to cut out all of that stuff that I said? Yeah, you might have to repeat yourself. All right. Robert, you keep saying that a Morton Joe gave away this water, like he's some sort of... I just don't think that he should have wasted it. That was all. Make it available and charge for it. Can you remind me of my point? No. Um, no you asked no, about uh, the milkmaids. Yeah, the milkmaids and then the, the breeder wives, the rape wives that Dan calls them. And, uh, the, the mothers at the end, as they were, um, using a, a, a woman in a cage, or not a cage, but necessarily like a chained up woman to, a like, as a trap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about the milkmaid scene, I think it's weird. As a mother who has breastfed her children, you're doing that specifically for your child, and there's a bond involved, so it seems strange that they were, like, milking them like cows. Mm-hmm. And then are they selling that? They're selling it. They're trading it, right? They're definitely getting something out of that. I mean, they were seemed to be well-fed compared to everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> they did look like well-fed cows. Right. I mean, they, they were definitely, they had security, probably food, water, but who knows how much of a freedom they have. It's not clear. So along along the same line as the breeder wives, like, they are given a maybe not so nice, not so pleasant job opportunity, but their other option is to go out and most likely die. Right. So then if this is the best job they could get, is Joe evil for offering him that job? Yeah. I would say he's definitely terribly. But at one point, I mean, it becomes clear in the movie, and I'd like to get your point, your, your, uh, your answer to this question, because it's discovered that one of them is pregnant, and Morton Joe is like, I need to get my child back. So um, he's definitely more concerned about the baby. He wants his heir. Uh, there seems to be he had a couple of other children, right? They sort of introduced them, but they're yeah. Know, there's one that's like this deformed. Little yeah. dwarf dude, and then this other one is like this giant, uh, what's his name, Invictus or something? Rictus. Rictus. Yeah, so he's already got some children fighting by his side. Yeah, but maybe not the, the um, sort of child he wants to leave his kingdom to. So he's hoping for that out of this breeder wife. Right, because Rictus is really, really dumb, and then the other guy... Uh, Probably not in the best physical health. Yeah, not going like, to maybe even outlive Joe. Right. Yeah, he looks more like Dan. After not working out for four months. Oh, oh we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what right do you think? I mean, I, to me, yeah, um, Joe is obviously not a good parent necessarily. I mean, he's displayed a, a penchant for violence. Um, but does he have any right to his child? I mean, he has. Does he have as much of a right to his child as is uh, as his wife does? That's a really tough question yes. to answer. I mean, Good. my goodness. What well, What would you think? 
I'm asking you guys. You he guys, would, you, you he know. would, he would be the one to provide for that child, whether the child is with him or with the mom. So if the, if you say the mom has a right to the child, then she has no way to take care of that kid without Joe. So she has to stay with Joe. Right. Or escape to the green space, which is what she attempted to do. Which doesn't which even doesn't exist. exist. Right. Right. Uh, but so she can take her baby and leave and die, or she can stay there. Right. What, what um, paternal rights do you think would exist uh, for a raper, right? Like somebody commits we, a rape, do they have parent, parental rights thereafter? It seems like a pretty bizarre situation. So, Daniel, you're convinced that, that, that Joe's a rapist, and, and that's the only thing going on here. Jamie, is he, that he is prefers that your the term also? raper? He prefers the term raper. As opposed to rapist? I would say, yeah. I mean, those women, I don't think they wanted to be his <laughs> Because wife. they were out of his league? They because he was, like, way ugly and they were way hot? Is that, is that what you're saying? That would be my guess. Okay. That would be my guess. Well, I've seen plenty of rich, ugly dudes with yep. attractive young women, but I think yep. that the, the premise in the movie is that he has selected these women and, and he holds them against their will. It's not explicitly stated, yeah. I don't think, but I, that's the impression that I got out of it. They're not, yeah, they're not allowed to leave. That's why they're sneaking out. Okay, so for Daniel, that, so that invalidates any parental rights. Daniel, even if he is the best one to care for the child, at least have the means to. Yeah, and I, this all goes back again to the contrived situations, right? Like, there is no real alternatives. We don't see the origination of, of where these things spring into existence from. Like, we don't see uh, that they are, in fact, you know, rape victims of, of his or if they loved him and uh, wanted to be with him because he was rich, you know. Mm-hmm. Or they worship him because they're cult members. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe like the war boys, they feel like they're fulfilling their higher purpose by becoming his wife and, you know. Right. Yeah, we don't necessarily... We get that. All we can do is assume that they didn't feel that way because they were trying to escape. Yeah. Right. And then Furiosa was also kidnapped as a child. So, you know, the the kidnapping uh, slave train goes back pretty far. Mm-hmm. So it, it's sort of what, what he tends to, to do, at least in the movie. So I, I would suspect that that's what he, you know, that's how he acquired the means that he has. All right, that's fair enough. But let's talk about uh, the feminist issues that I think were, I don't know if you and I talked about them uh, a few months ago when we were thinking about doing this movie, or if there were some stories about it, some like articles or reviews. Because there does seem to be this um, definite uh, nod to some feminist stuff in here. Right, like the biker gang at the end, they're all like these badass people, and then it's revealed that they're all these old women, and even they objectify these five, or I guess four only make it, um, of the rape wives. Like, Jamie, do you remember that scene where they're like inspecting, like, oh, these are nice teeth, and oh, good, good bosom on here, nice hips. Yeah, that, that stood out to us when we watched it. And they did. I remember I now that, that there was a scene where they were knocking off the like the 
jagged teeth chastity belt that he had the wives wear to ensure oh, right. that he couldn't, they couldn't fool around on him. So they, they must have had some kind of yeah. run of the, the Citadel then if he had felt the need to do that. But yeah, they were definitely then more his property than wife. Oh, I think he even calls him his property, actually, now that you mention it. So the scene that the, uh, the, the wives are introduced, uh, they're showering themselves in the desert uh-huh. uh, after just escaping. You're, you're definitely supposed to see them as, like, these ethereal creatures, and they're magnificent, and, I mean, they're all models slash actresses, and they're in incredible shape, and they're all gorgeous. So you put them out there in these, like, skimpy rags, and spray them with, have them spray themselves in each other with water. It, you know, kind of sets you up for this, like, they're seen as these goddesses. Yeah. So did you see, did you notice, was the the feminism kind of overt for you? I mean, for me, it was very kind of, it kind of made all sense. I, I never really got a strong feminist theme in the movie. I mean, sure, there were, the, the, the female clans of the mothers and then Furiosa's a badass. But it's not like you've got some five foot two woman beating up some six foot four Rictus strong guy. I mean, the, 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 the mothers were good because they could shoot a weapon really well. And they were mobile and they could get in between and, you know, they had good dexterity in that sense against fighting against these larger vehicles and that sort of thing. I mean, it wasn't like ridiculous. Whereas, gosh, not to bring this up too much, but <laughs> I watched an episode of uh, Supergirl recently, and maybe yeah, it's writing. I, I don't know, but the very first episode, um, Supergirl is fighting like this bad guy, and somebody says, "Oh, she's or this guy." He says, "Oh no, she's not strong enough to fight this bad guy," and this other lady is like, "Why? Because she's a girl." And it's like, uh, no, because she's just not as strong as the other guy. Why Why does it have to be a guy-girl thing? I don't understand. Whereas in Fury Road, it's very much just, uh, it's almost like gender didn't matter to a certain extent, you know, in the, in the, in the levels of power and whatnot and strength and ability. You don't think that gender mattered? You don't think that they were put into specific classes? There were no men fighting in the war. There were no war girls. Right, but what I mean to say is um, there wasn't any kind of overt talk about, well, you can't do that because you're a girl. And nobody, at any time, nobody ever said, hey, Furiosa, you can't drive a war rig, you're a girl. Or you're pretty plucky for a girl to be able to drive a war rig all by yourself. Wow, isn't your daddy proud? There was none of that kind of crap talk. And yes, the, the, the wives were, you know, the slave wives. And the breeder moms were the breeder or the milk moms because of those physical characteristics. But I wouldn't say that this is an overtly like feminist movie. I mean, did you see it differently? I didn't I see that know. either. When Dan had, had originally um, mentioned watching this movie, you know, we've been talking about it for months, he said that it had some something relating to feminism. So we talked about it and then we watched it and I didn't, I didn't see that either. The, the biker gang, they're, they're these, these tough old ladies, and they're skeptical of men. 
they're like no boys allowed kind of you know like there it's just women in their group mm-hmm. so maybe that's something that feminists watch the movie and are like hell yeah mm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, yeah, we can do it without these stupid men it's like because yeah there is at yeah. one point they go um one of the wives is like oh you're pregnant yeah it's gonna be ugly and then the, the old lady is like well it could be a girl so it's kind of a Kind of a little feminist type thing, like yeah, boys are ugly, girls are pretty. Yeah, because if if the and Morton Joe was the father of either a boy or a girl, I mean he's ugly, so therefore it wouldn't matter <laughs> the gender. Uh, he'd still be an ugly baby. Right, which which the wife would have known, but the old lady would not have known. The old lady would have was just making a gender comment, whereas uh, the wife was saying, yeah, he's ugly, therefore the baby's going to be ugly. So yeah, I could see the uh, the old mothers being the more feminist um, presence in this movie. Yeah, I kind of got the impression from them that they were like, we've evolved past needing men or something like that. Like we're badass enough, we don't need men. There were no men in their clan, right? Right. But they didn't necessarily, or they were distrustful of Max, weren't they? A little bit at the beginning, but then yeah, after Friosa said, "Oh no, he's cool." Yeah, she had to vouch like, for okay. him and Nux. She had to vouch for both right. of the guys. Right. So there was a distrust of men. Yeah, there was definitely a distrust, and and yeah, it wasn't until they were, it was like, no, these people can actually be used for something, not because they're, you know, it's not right to just murder them, but you can actually exploit them for something, then then it's okay to have them around. Yeah, and I'm just reading through the wiki a little bit, and some people see that the theme of this um, is, you know, survival, right, doing whatever you can to survive. And, uh, using the American West as kind of the backdrop for all this. Um, and it carries a theme of female empowerment is one argument. Uh, control is another theme, which is, uh, based on control of fluids, particularly, uh, the water needed for survival, as well as the wives' breast milk and the blood of his prisoners, including Max. And the gas, but yeah. Yeah, and the gas. Does that spark any commentary for either of you? Mm, I mean, those are just normal resources that people need to survive. I don't know if he was necessarily making any kind of a comment about those things. It's it's interesting that those are kind of fairly prominent, um, but they all made sense in a way. I mean, you're going to get, you know, a lot of the nutrients out of mother's milk that aren't going to be available in a desert wasteland so that's going to be a valuable thing uh you all get around in cars which aren't the most fuel efficient they're all they're all giant v8 monsters that with tacked on steel and cages and weapons and so they're probably just burning through gas which is why they probably call it guzzoline um and then yeah water everybody needs water so and blood so yeah those normal, necessary things, although, yeah, I guess it is kind of interesting that they all um, made it into the story somewhat. All right, so uh, just based on that, I looked up the Hollywood reporter who called the uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Well, they call it Mad Mad Fury Road, their number one movie of the year. Uh, They say it breaks the mold in so many ways that uh, George Miller, who's in his early 70s, is still at the top of his game. It handles... Themes of female empowerment without speeches or signs trumpeting it doing so, making the messages 
all that more powerful. Miller redefines what a post-apocalyptic society would look like while at the same time pushing the envelope of what an action movie should feel and sound like, leaving the faces of its audiences burnt by hot metal and hot wind. Right. So he, this guy bought into the um, Miller's idea of what a post-apocalyptic world would look like. Yeah, and apparently sees sees a lot of female empowerment in it as well. So I guess that's where I kind of, I think I had seen some, some some reviews of it, you know, a few months ago that talked about the female angle. And of course, you've got Furiosa, who's like this strong female lead. Uh, but to contrast that, you've got Mad Max, who through the first like two hours of the movie, I don't even remember how long it is. He says like four words, like he hardly does anything. In his in his defense, he's got like a face cage for a lot of it. But even when he takes the face cage off, he is still just yeah grunting for the most part. Yeah, it isn't until the very end when he comes up with this plan of like, hey, you guys should just go back. You know, we know we know what is there. Like it's a known quantity, and there's a chance we can get it versus this unknown that we'd probably all just die. Right. So yeah, man of very few words and. I haven't seen the original, you know, Mel Gibson versions of these in, in probably 25 years now. Did he barely speak and kind of grunt a lot as well? Is that sort of what Tom Hardy's basing his character on, or is this kind of new? Um, from what I remember, and I haven't seen the, the very original one, The Road Warrior in a million years, and that might be more of a grunting role, um, but... From what I recall of Thunderdome and um, like Beyond Thunderdome, or I forget the, the second and the third one. Um, yeah, he's like interacting with people all the time and talking to them. There's like a, like a helicopter pilot, and there's a uh, little uh, like weird scientisty type people. I don't know. I always attribute people that look weird, weird these weird futuristic type costumes as like sciencey type of like, like headbands. But yeah, he like talks to them, as I recall, more so than this. I'm not really sure where they got the the grunting monosyllabic uh, version of Max, but I'm sorry. Uh, well, all right. <laughs> I think that means that she had to go grab one of the kids. No, I'm here. I oh. accidentally pushed the button. Oh, we didn't hear anything. Oh, okay, good. All right, so what what the fuck was I talking about? Or you were talking about? Someone was talking about something. Uh, just the monosyllabic nature of Max Rokitansky. Oh, right, right. Yeah, and, and they do play up the, uh, you know, he's clearly traumatized, right? He had promised to protect a bunch of people, and he's haunted by these children and these old people. Oh, those are his family? Uh, yeah, a lot of them are his family, but also from yeah, the previous movie, as I understand it. Is that why he decides to help the uh, Furiosa and the wives? Because at first, you know, he and Knox are fighting with her when they come across her, and then they band together. But it, maybe it's just because of how we watch movies and bits and pieces that it's not all making sense to me. Yeah, um, yeah. first Max gets control of the change? war rig. And he doesn't want uh-huh. anybody else with him. He just starts driving off without it. But then uh, Furious is set in the kill switches. So he's like, yeah, a very reluctant passenger. He really just wants to survive and go his own way and be his own dude. He doesn't want to 
get involved in all this shit that's going down. Um, he's very much a reluctant passenger in this movie, as opposed to the, like the driving force. But at, at some point, it seems like he starts feeling like a connection to them and wants to help them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, yeah, he definitely feels guilt over not being able to protect his family, and maybe he sees an opportunity to do a little bit of that in this situation. Is that what you read, Daniel? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was a little bit confused by it. I thought that it was um, just random people that he had promised to protect, and he failed them in some way. And then, of course, he failed to protect himself when the war boys captured him. And then there's that scene where the, he's in the in, in prison and they're tattooing his back with, like, all this information, like, that he's a good donor. And, and we paused it for a second and tried to part. read what a lot of it said. But it was pretty crazy. And then he fights them and tries to escape, and then they uh, end up recapturing him. And then they're using him uh, to provide blood transfusions on the road <laughs> for Nux driving his war vehicle, right? And he's like... Mm-hmm on this pedestal way out in front, <laughs> like he'd be at significant risk of getting killed, right? And so it didn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, obviously it's for cinematic effect or whatever, sort of like the guitar player dude and the drums. But uh, it seems like if, if no, he's... No, those are legit war tactics. <laughs> right. But if he's <laughs> like... talking about that too. Keeping Nux alive, they'd want to protect him in some fashion, you know? keep the blood bag alive. Right, but from a storytelling perspective, you want to put that Max in in danger so that we feel uneasy and thrilled and all that good stuff. Yeah, so Robert, let's talk a little bit about the, just the movie in general because there, I, I think I read that all of the stunts were actually done live and they added some CGI for like some explosions and effects, but like the guys on the top of the poles were, were really doing this the motorcycles coming down these sand dunes were really doing this, you know, down these craggy um, canyons. Uh, do, you, do you know much about that at all? And then uh, after that, let's talk about there's two versions of this film. There's the uh, color version that also has a lot of monochromaticness to it. But then there's the black and chrome version, which apparently, if you watch it in that version, it plays very different. Hmm. I remember I remember that black and chrome version, but I've never seen it. Um yeah, I've seen a, a documentary on the the practical effects that they use in this movie. There's a whole ton of digital compositing that goes on. So all that stuff, you know, most of that stuff really happened. It's just, you know, it wasn't done in close proximity to each other. And then so they would have a, a, a war rig come along and get blown up. Well, they really did blow up a thing, but it wasn't right next to 10 other vehicles while they did it. Um there, a lot of times when you'll see people being, you know, cars exploding and people flying off them, um, a lot of times those are just dummies, but there are actual things that are flying off because, you know, you probably don't want to blow up a stuntman. Um, but yeah, most of it is uh, compositing, so it's fairly seamless. Um, I can't really complain about any of it i really enjoyed the the one big cgi scene which is the uh the sandstorm i thought that was fantastic uh there was only one part this movie was definitely made for the 3d um there are only i think two instances where it's really noticeable though 
I saw this originally in 3D and immediately regretted it. I, I Not only does it make the picture darker, but then there's these gratuitous 3D scenes where the steering wheel comes flying at you, and it's like, eh, did you really need to do that? That seems kind of dumb just for just for the effect of that. Right. Also, wasn't there like some guy's head getting blown up that flew out? Uh, that could be. I don't recall that, but um, there are definitely, uh, yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I saw this, obviously, in the theater. And I only saw it that one time and immediately didn't want to. In fact, I, I saw it a second time in the theater, and the second time I definitely saw it without 3D and vowed to never see another 3D movie again until they get the technology right or they stop with the hokiness. But, uh, yeah, I think this movie was a fantastic um, application of real-world stunts and uh, digital compositing with some CGI thrown in to complete the picture. Um yeah, it's weird. It almost came out of left field because George Miller, I mean, yeah, he's probably young when he was doing the original Mad Max movies. So the cinematography and the effects, and you don't really get this idea of this bombastic director really able to pull all this off. I don't know how everything came together for this movie. Um, but cool that it did. Um, I think they're making a sequel, which is I'm looking forward to. Um, hopefully we get a little more information that we could discuss maybe about the economics of the situation or I really just want another good movie. I, I really don't care too much. Um, but yeah, this is the, one of the best uh, action movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, so yeah, kudos. It doesn't, it doesn't try to do a whole lot. I think that was one of the big criticisms when I first saw it, that people were saying that, well, it's just an action movie. It's just, a, it's just one long action scene. I'm like, yeah, but that's all it tried to do. And it was glorious. So who cares? <laughs> It doesn't try to do a whole lot else. And I know people were complaining about the circular nature of the plot. Yeah, it's kind of kind of new, unique, a little bit, kind of clever. So I didn't, I didn't, it didn't bother me. And what was it that drove you to want to do this film for the for the show? You know, what I got into the idea that uh, that um, this guy's evil for giving water away. I. Um, it's not clear. We're not giving enough information. We can make speculations that he is obviously this bad guy who will use violence to get what he wants. We know that much. But I can't, I don't think you can just say that he will extrapolate that out and to use violence at all times and every time. And that he violently dominates everybody. Um, it seems to be that he's like this mix of this kind of warlord slash cult leader. But I don't think you can fault him necessarily for being a cult leader. Um, I think it's kind of gross. But people have self-ownership, and you don't have to believe in that crap if you don't want to. Um, people obviously got something out of those relationships in order to do that. Um, you could say that it's people preying on the weak-minded, but that I'm sorry, that argument doesn't, doesn't fly with self-ownership. It just doesn't. Either people can decide for themselves what they enjoy and what they want to do, or they can't, and they're just puppets being played by some master puppeteer person. Um, so for that is what the main crux of what I wanted to talk about. Um, it's fine if you watch the movie and you didn't, you didn't see a whole lot to discuss. That's how we've, we've talked, we've talked longer about movies that have less to talk about. Um, the next movie that I want to talk about, Passengers, has even less to talk about. 
but uh, it's got one big solid issue that I that I find interesting. So that's that, that's enough, don't you think? We've done well, more yeah. left. Yeah, I mean, we've already been going for over an hour on this one, uh, and I feel like we've talked a fair amount about about this movie, even though there is just really the one one issue, which, like you were saying, there's really not enough information provided for us to really know what we're dealing with here. But I think Jamie was trying to make a point earlier, and I don't think we could hear her, but she was saying, and Jamie, you're still on, right? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so you were saying that in Morton Joe, he was um, spraying the water down on the people in a very inefficient and wasteful way. And I'm wondering if that might have been a um, a dig at Morton Joe being this rich capitalist who owns the water, and he's forcing people to live there or forcing them because uh, they need the water to survive. And he's like, Spilling it out at them, but not in an efficient way. So it's it's showing the capitalism, if if it is capitalism, or uh, whatever system is inefficient at allocating resources. And Furiosa is like that should be all of our water, and there should be a more equitable distribution of the water. Robert, do you see any context for that? Like perhaps the film is trying to make the argument that uh, Joe is bad, therefore. He's wasteful and, and misallocating the water, and Furiosa is good, and therefore her idea of the water own, belongs to everybody is is the side of, of good and righteousness. Yeah, I could definitely see that the idea that uh, the decadence of the rich argument sort of style, like the classism type deal, where well, look how rich he is, and he's just wasting it. It's like nothing to him. How disgusting. It should be yeah, distributed equally among everybody or whatever. Um, I'm not so sure if, yeah, he's making this anti-capitalist argument, but if you zone in on what they originally said that, um, in the movie, the quote that I said that I, um, of spoken by Furiosa, I think it's either Furiosa or one of the wives towards at the end of the movie when they're deciding whether to come back or not, where they say that, well, since he owns all the water, then that means by proxy he owns everybody. And that he's some sort of like slave lord, and I think that's that that's completely false. I mean, right, and that that's an Ancom argument, right? Those right, yeah. And because Furios is the hero, I would surmise that that is the argument of the movie. Yeah, and it's one of the arguments in the movie. It's not. I, it's the it's the argument that I zoned in on as being wrong, but I would. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily the argument. I think maybe more the argument is just that um, you know, slavery is wrong. But the idea that you are a slave to somebody because they give you a thing. I mean, if I give you a sandwich, are you my slave now? I, it doesn't make any well, sense. Well, how, how good a sandwich are we talking here? A really fucking good sandwich. I mean, you got roast beef. I don't know what you like, but I like roast beef, cheddar, lettuce, tomato, um, probably some stone ground mustard. It's got to be the good stuff, like that deli kid. Yeah, where the mutton just melts in your mouth. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> MLT. I mean, it was Jamie's baking that uh, got me hooked. So, you know, in a way, matrimonial uh, bond that we have that was voluntary. There's a there's a hint of you know she coaxed me into it with with her baking abilities. 
All right, yeah, so I've pretty much blown my load on this movie. Uh, if anybody has any kind of, like, different points or add little bits you want to talk about, um, otherwise I'm happy. Yeah, Jamie, you got anything you want to say? And then we can shut this one down. Um, no, I would say I agree with the, the uh, argument that it was just one long action scene. So, for me, that's not the... It's not my style of movie. So, it was a, a bit much. Like, it was just constant... Um, like visual stimulation, and the way that it's filmed, Dan and I talked about it. That it's um, it's it's faster, filmed faster or something. And it kind of it like it's really jittery, especially you notice it in the beginning. It's very jittery. Um, and it kind of makes you feel uneasy. At least it did me. Huh? Yeah, that was his uh, attempted escape from the War Boys. The initial escape attempt. Sure, yeah. I, I think that was an intentional effect. Yeah, like a super high frame rate, and then they like cut out some of the frames or they compressed it so that the, the movements were very kinetic and, and uh, almost like cut together in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was trying to you know show uh, Max's state of mind at that time. And he does that throughout the movie when he's kind of having these flashbacks to his family and whatnot. Um, but then, yeah, also the action in the movie was filmed kind of a, in a kinetic way where I think, I don't know exactly, you know, if like one frame out of every ten was taken out or whatever, but there are parts where it seems like that kind of effect happens. Yeah, so did you like it, Jamie? Did you like the acting? Did you like Furiosa? Uh, specifically her? I mean, um, I'm going to mask her. Her name Charlize? Mm-hmm. She's a great actress. So... I mean, I think she did well in the role, but as a movie, it's not something I would want to watch again. Interesting. All right. Mm. Very good. It's... Daniel? Yes? Thumbs up? Well, it was entertaining. Um, we don't watch a whole lot of, like, Rock'em Sock'em action movies. I know we just did the uh, Kong episode, and, and you like a good monster movie, so... I think that also plays into like a good, you know, chase scene. Like if you, this movie is like all a chase scene with lots of kinetic action and exploits and explosions. So I think this is probably your wheelhouse a little bit more, but I, you know, I think it was cool. It was a good movie. Um, yeah, I, pretty much all I have to say at this point. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, I know that's not really your cup of tea because there isn't like little bugs talking and singing songs and little Care Bears talking or whatever it is you guys watch. I don't know. That's Every what we've go been, place, that's that's what been watching for the last four years, yep. <laughs> right. Yeah, if it's not so. Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood or Word Party, I mean... Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. I understand. It's not your cup of tea. That's fine. But uh, thanks for guys coming on and doing this episode anyway, even though it wasn't quite in your wheelhouse. So uh, let's wrap this one up, Daniel. Yeah, well, hey, Jamie, thanks for, for sticking with us and humoring us while we talked about this movie. And uh, audience, thank you for humoring us and sitting through this. I feel like this was a rather disjointed discussion, but hopefully you got at least something worth thinking about out of our discussion here. Uh, so this has been the Actual Anarchy Podcast. We run actualanarchy.com and readrothbar.com. We talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. Click on any of the Amazon links or the Prime link down at the bottom. 
We've also got the turbulence training link uh, in our suggested websites, and also you can go to readrothbard.com slash TT if you want to check that out and uh, you know see what kind of results people are getting. Jamie did it for uh, just over, just about two years now, and she has reclaimed her body back from having two kids, and that's very impressive. So kudos to you, Jamie. Thank you. Yeah, give us a listen, give us a like, give us a review, iTunes, Amazon, not Amazon, uh, Google Play. Well, you can check us out on the Amazon. You can give us, follow on some of our Amazon links. That would be cool. But, yeah, uh, mention us, repeat us, talk about, you know, tell your friends, tell your family, anybody you think would be interested. We appreciate it. Take care of yourselves. Give us a hug. Give them a hug. Give your friends a hug. Don't be so stingy with the hugs. Daniel, did you hug somebody today? No. I did. I hugged a one-and-a-half-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. It was great. Good job. That, 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 that's all, folks. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do